Hey everyone, Josh and Ryan here, and welcome back to the 2% Podcast. Research shows if you put 100 random people in a room, somewhere amongst them, there'll be just two truly incredible, inspirational people who are living their lives to the fullest. In this podcast, we bring those exact people to you, week in, week out. 2% of a day is just half an hour, so thank you for taking 2% of your day to be educated and inspired by joining us on our journey as we learn the secrets, routines and dreams of the two percenters. Okay, hello. Welcome back to the Two Percent Podcast. Today we are joined by Leo Sartain. Leo, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. No problem. I hope you're having a a great day. We've got lots of sunshine across the UK. And um, yeah, so just going to start straight in. Uh, Leo, if you mind giving us a uh, short bio of yourself, just a couple of minutes, uh, who you are, what, what you're doing, and um, what, why are we on the 2% podcast today? Well, thank you for, for asking. So I'm, I'm Leo Sartain. I uh, just finished my time at Edinburgh University, been there for four years studying history of art. And it was actually a year ago today that I launched uh, my art dealership slash art gallery. Um, we've had an exhibition and sold lots of paintings and worked with lots of interesting people since then. Uh, and that's sort of been building momentum since then, really. But uh, yeah, what else? So I grew up in a variety of places due to my parents' jobs. So I was in like Kenya, Abu Dhabi, Turkey, Germany, Ireland. Like it was a lot of moving as a kid, but I think it's definitely helped shape my sort of view onto culture and definitely different arts around the world I was exposed to quite young. So I think that's affected why I kind of i guess got into history of art i did it a level first mm. uh, and then it was about that point where i was like yeah i probably should stop trying to be a doctor after getting a d in my as biology i was <laughs> like right i'll go into art instead and so kind of set myself on a task of being an art dealer and actually after i i left school i won the history of art prize um and upon getting that announced i was asked to write a little piece about me as to like who i am what i'm going to do after i leave uni and I didn't really understand what they were going to do with that information. So I said, I want to leave uni and become a successful art dealer. And this was actually read out to like the entire congregation of like the whole school and parents oh, and wow. leaders and everything. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, well, pressure's on now. Um, <laughs> but actually from that, thankfully, a, a friend of a friend got in touch with a gallerist in Edinburgh and uh, linked me up and I met him. And it was a sort of a good starting place. So I think, mm. yeah, it was good that I was, uh, was bold with that as a, yeah, I mean, the, the exactly successful part is yet to be seen, but uh, that's kind of where I'm at, really. I just, yeah, love art, and I've always been into entrepreneurship, always been been hustling. Uh, started off when I was at prep school, and I'd go to the, the lost property, and I'd take it and then sell it back to people. Uh, I got in a lot of trouble for that, but uh, no, that's kind of where <laughs> I started. And then all throughout school, I was all sorts of different schemes, and there was a period where I was selling sheepskin jackets. That was weird for a bit. But no, always trying to you know make a bit of money on the side, trying to do yeah, what I can, sure. and it's and ended up in art. So yeah, that's kind of where yeah. it's at right now. That's my that's journey. Fantastic. That's on there, I suppose. And and we'll go into the gallery, uh, the Rafiki Gallery, a, a little bit later. But to kind of start, but your beginning, I suppose, kind of why art then? I mean, you mentioned that you moved around a lot, and that was a big inspiration for you, kind of getting into it in the first place, being exposed to and involved with a lot of different cultures is that kind of the main thing for you i mean what what draws you to art and then later on to to art dealership yeah so the draw to art i guess comes from yeah growing up in different places my parents were very 
hot on taking me around galleries and you know big castles and all sorts of paintings places and I must admit you know some of it was spent unplugging the like audio guide and plugging in my iPod and listening to my own stuff for a bit but you know I think in hindsight I was very very lucky as a child my parents did an awful lot they were very culturally aware um, and so that helped a lot and then I suppose my teachers at A-level were actually fantastic they were the most eccentric bunch of people and they just told the most incredible stories uh, we had a great history of art trip to Paris I suppose a long time ago now but it was just so much fun I remember just being aware of all the art and all the rich history that comes with it I think people hear history of art and a lot of them will just sort of scoff and assume it's a soft subject and I mean okay you can make it a soft subject if you want to just like with any subject but I think the the history of the world can be told through through art mm. I mean you got to look you know the earliest form of art we see is neolithic like wall paintings you know humans have always been drawn to create paintings and art and for me that really struck a chord uh, and I was determined to try and carve my own little niche in it and try and just make an impact I guess you know art I believe has the power to change lives and society and stuff so it was all that's my sort of main drive I suppose to try and make a difference with it all yeah that's powerful and um so studying art at school then what drove you to then go and do history of art at university at Edinburgh were you were you an artist yourself for a time or kind of pursuing your own thing and then decided oh no I'm going to go down the that more academic route kind of how did that pan out for you yeah, no, I was a little bit um, foolish at school, perhaps. I took, um, my A-levels were History of Art, History and Geography, AS Biology. AS Biology was a, a horrible mistake, huge regret. <laughs> um, but the other rest were fine. But I actually regret really not doing art, um, both at uni and at school. I think I never really saw it as, a, as an option for me. Um, I was set on being like a marine biologist up until the age of like 16 and then it all sort of changed partly because my brother started doing it and I was like well I'm not doing that then but uh, I suppose I remember meeting one of my you know I'm sure you're both aware when you're at school you have like university advisors and you go and talk to them about mm. how terrible your life is and they tell you it'll be okay uh, and I was chatting to them about whether I was going to end up doing geography or history of art and it became clear that I was far more passionate about being in the art world and just you know it's it's a very attractive market you know you hear these sums of you know this painting sold for 90 million or you know Monet mm. Picasso all these names that you know evoke so much luxury and I think it really appealed to me and I sort of wanted to get to the bottom of it and just find out exactly what's going on in these circles and you know sort of peer behind the curtain and see what was actually going on behind so I think that was my sort of main incentive and then I was fortunate enough to do a little bit of work with the Royal Collection when I was still at school to spend some time at Buckingham Palace and Windsor and St. James's Palace looking at all the art there. Uh, and I'll, I'll admit it was a lot of like filing stuff. It wasn't the most exciting time, um, but yeah. Yeah, the other it was three days doing it and one day was filing stuff, which actually ended up being quite interesting once I got the hang of it. And then the other two days were just sort of exploring the collection and seeing the, the restoration yard as well was really interesting. So I think that again, piqued my interest and it's kind of just been increments of interest of grown and grown and grown. Um, and then history of art. I was very set on it. I think a lot of people choose it because they don't know what they're going to do. It's sort of an ongoing joke that history of art is what you do if you're not sure what you want to do, but I was always set on it. And yeah, I mean, I've, I enjoyed it. It was a good choice. I think uni possibly wasn't the best thing for me to do. I think I okay. probably could have yeah. done without it. 
but um, I've met very interesting people and I've learned a lot from it. So I think in hindsight, you know, uni was beneficial, but there are times where I was like, God, this is a waste of my time. Uh, but, you know, we all learn in different ways. Yeah, I'm interested that you say that because I was going to ask actually, like we speak a lot on the 2% podcast, especially as business students about the gap between what's taught at university and then applying that to real life. So as sort of a student in uh, history of art, do they teach you any of those practical things for you to go out and do your art dealing and things like that? Or is it more theoretical based and is it, you know, is it applicable to the real world in that sense? So, I mean, no, is the short answer. I think they, they at no point do they teach you how to sail or, you know, consult with artists or work in a dealership or works in auction houses. It's very much about the paintings and the art and the theories a lot of it can be very theory heavy, which is a lot of reading and I'm quite dyslexic. So that was not my strong point, but um, mm. no, not at all. And I think especially with art students as well, you know, they're taught how to paint, how to look properly, how to see, how to do all this practical stuff, but at no point are they taught how to make themselves marketable or how to liaise with the gallery. And these things just aren't taught. Um, and I think that was a real, real issue and a real disconnect. I mean, there are societies that are there to help with that a bit, but, I don't know. I, I didn't really connect with it that much. Um, so mm. it was a lot just down to yourself. And I think that's why a lot of students come out not even bothering with that. I think a lot of them wait till they're finished to try and set up their own stuff because while you're there, you're busy getting drunk and going out, and not attending <laughs> lectures, basically. Yeah. Do you think that's a potential market opportunity then, whether, whether for the universities themselves or for third parties to come in and provide that support and advice on how to take talented knowledgeable art students on how to you know turn this into a, a revenue generating stream outside of university yeah definitely i think there's a gap in the market for teaching those skills for sure i think it'd be difficult to compete i think a lot of students come out of doing for example history of art and go straight to the big auction houses and get internships and start working their way up from there so i think that would possibly be the more attractive option because you're getting paid straight away admittedly probably mm -hmm. not a lot but I think, yeah, that option. And I mean, it, there were some visiting talks from art world professionals who talked about how they got into what they're doing and how they do it. But at no point was there, I don't, well, at least for me, I didn't come into contact with any direct kind of careers advice until the very, 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 very end of my university time when I sort of stumbled upon it. Um, mm. But no, I mean, it might be there, but I, I personally wasn't aware of it. But I think that is something that could could do really well, actually, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So based on that knowledge, you said you, you didn't have that sort of experience uh, or that guidance on how to do that. What challenges did you face? Like talk us through that journey of being just an art student and turning that into the, your, your own gallery. How did that come about? Yeah. So it started off as all things do. It was quite a simple idea and then, you know, snowballed out of control mm -hmm. and then had to be reined in a bit and then snowballed again. But it started off as me seeing a lot of my friends who are art students producing amazing paintings and also something people don't realize is that if you're an art student you have to buy all your own supplies or your own canvas or your own paints all your sort of stuff ends up being quite expensive and it can be quite restrictive to a lot of people as well as to who you know ends up doing those degrees which you know adds to the whole elitist sort of aspect of the art world which i'm trying hard to kind of bash down the doors of slowly but surely we'll get there but uh, i started off me wanting to take these artists and put their work into venues around the city uh, for sale to basically help them get generating income and obviously I, I would take a, a commission I did on commission based so they'd consign artworks to me I'd get in contact with my contacts in the city 
and I worked in a, in a bar uh, for a lot of my time at uni. So I knew a lot of the uh, independent venue owners. And so I would go in there and chat to them and try and get them on board. Uh, and, you know, 99% of people are really keen for it. Occasionally, you know, artwork wouldn't suit their aesthetic, in which case I'm like, cool, no worries. I'm not going to try and force some art into you. So it was that kind of process. And then it went from getting current students to getting graduating students to getting some artists who were, you know, in their 50s, 60s, who graduated a long time ago. And I guess it sort of, you know, grew into a bit more of an established uh, gallery. I think I, I was very conscious not to make it too much of a student enterprise, hence why I didn't go to the uni for advice till the very end. I think I struggled on for quite a long time and then slowly became aware of, you know, the resources that are there. And I mean, there are a lot. Edinburgh does an awful lot, but it's not very good at making people aware of it. Yeah, eventually I got in touch with the careers people and had a good meeting with a chap called Ross McLennan. He was very useful. Uh, and he basically told me to start small. And, you know, I had, I had these grand ideas of having art all over Edinburgh and it becoming a great big thing. And he was like, look, mate, just chill out. Get one piece of art into one cafe and go yeah. from there. And that's what I did. I got one piece of painting, or it's actually three paintings, into a cafe and they sold. And it was the, like the best feeling ever that this was this might work. You know, it was sort of like the minimal viable product, you know, painting, gallery, cool, done, mm. sale, money in the pocket, wicked. So that was kind of a real boost knowing that this actually might go somewhere. And then it grew with, you know, I've now got, I think, three or four venues. Um, I had an exhibition in a bar where some friends worked, who was the manager. And they had a kind of a spare function room upstairs because they were about to change it into a restaurant. So to, and there was an element of obviously luck and serendipity, which I'm a huge believer in. And, you know, you know, right place, right time, as well as drive, I think, is, you know, often factors with businesses. And, yeah, we put a show on there and it was fantastic and it was really exciting. I learned a lot. I tried doing everything myself. I mean, I, up to this point, it is only me as the business. It's, I'm the only one that does it, partly because I don't i can't pay anyone else like i don't make a lot of money yet <laughs> um so it's not really viable for me to have someone else in but yeah did that it grew and then obviously uni got in the way so it slowed down a wee bit and so then i started my, my own podcast stuff just to try and network and get people talking about things that i thought were important and then exams got slightly in the way fourth year gets a little bit complicated as i'm sure you're both aware uh and then yeah, and then COVID, Ooh. and that put a bit of a stop on things. I have a, I got like two full exhibitions behind locked doors in Edinburgh right now that were going to be great uh, big events that I was really working hard towards, but I've got I just got shut down, which is a shame. But uh, that's kind of, I guess, the, the journey up to now. Yeah, no, fantastic. So, just to clarify how how the gallery works uh, for me as somebody that's kind of come into art from a, a complete novice perspective, so. You work with artists to, to get their paintings displayed in, in public places, like, you know, the cafes, restaurants, places like that. Like, you don't have a premises of your own, or, or do you have a premises that, that is only yours? Yeah, so this is where it gets a bit more uh, businessy, in that, you know, trying to get a, a full time venue is very expensive. So the overheads are quite high. Uh, and you know, ultimately, I would like to have a space, uh, but it would be a very non-traditional gallery space i don't particularly enjoy the white cube aesthetic that's like mm. you walk in and like 50 meters down there's someone with a, a weird haircut and big glasses <laughs> that kind of stares you down as you walk in which is like the stereotypical image of, of a for posh gallery oh, which i don't yeah. really enjoy so yeah i kind of went against that and i go into you know 
hotels, cafes, restaurants, hairdressers, beauty salons, basically anywhere where people spend a bit of time. And it was this idea to try and get people interested in art in a sort of less direct manner. Because, you know, people walk into bars far more than they walk into art galleries, right? So if you walk into a bar and you see a painting and you see a label saying Rafiki Gallery, you're like, oh, that's cool, nice. And then you go into a cafe the next week and there's another painting, interesting, and Rafiki Gallery, and it tells you about the artist and it's a bit interesting. And then a month later, you see an advertisement for the Rafiki Gallery exhibition opening in like a, a space that you've been to before. You're much more inclined to then be like, oh, okay, I'll, maybe I'll check this out than if it was come to this gallery at this place that you've never heard of, that you've never been into, that you've never even seen. I think it was kind of like art by stealth a wee bit just to get people just aware of it and interested. And I think, you know, the more people that are aware of art and having beautiful objects, I think the better really, you know, that's, that's what I'm about. So yeah, that's kind of why I use different venues rather than just having a sole gallery space. Also just can't afford it right now. Yeah, That's a fact of being a, you know, student business. They don't tend to make a lot of money at the start. Um, but you know, you got to start small. I think that's my, that was the advice I was told and I kind of stuck with it growing from there. Yeah, no, that, that's great. And that is the, the kind of core thing, isn't it? Of starting any business is start small, create your kind of minimal, minimal viable product, like the first thing, get that first sale and, and that sort of thing. And, and it's great to see that you've, that you've taken that. And, and as you say, it's kind of snowballed and, and grown. Um, how have you been able to kind of engage with artists? How have you found having those conversations of, kind of going and just talking to someone and saying, oh, this is what I'm trying to start. This is what I'm trying to do. Do you want to be a part of it? Like, how does that, how does that go down? Yeah, so that's, a, again, a, you know, an interesting part of the job and the part I love. You know, I love working with artists and creatives, interesting people. Uh, it's what I enjoy. And so, you know, I, there are a lot of the artists I picked up were either people who I knew from art school or I went to the degree show uh, and, and if you're not aware that at the end of every kind of art student's career at uni they have a big degree show and it's their big like final piece and it tends to be very large they, everyone tends to go big uh, and make it like the best they can while they're at school and they all show it and you know a lot of galleries and dealers and collectors go around these places to try and see what the hot upcoming talent is uh, and I basically went around there and approached a couple of people saying, look, I think your stuff's really cool. Uh, I'd love to work with you. And I kind of explained to them a little bit about what I'm doing. Um, you know, most people are keen to work with you. If you can say, look, I can hopefully get your art seen by more people, appreciated by more people, hopefully make you some money. I think, you know, anyone that says no, I don't understand why they're saying no. But equally, there was a lot of rejection. You know, I think part of any sort of journey in business, you've got to deal with people saying no and not letting that affect you and working out why they've said no and working on that so there's a lot of people who initially said yes i'd exchange emails get in touch with them and then it was just radio silence and then like two months later you'd seen their sign to another gallery and you know it's kind of like ah but also chances are if that's the case maybe i wouldn't have been the right fit for them and that gallery would have done equally as this has gone on i've had artists get in touch with me asking for representation and i've either had too much on my plate at the time or it, it didn't quite fit my sort of um, vision and so I've had to say look I'm really sorry but maybe if you get in touch with this gallery they might fit you slightly better because I think you know there's I, I see no benefit to just saying no I don't like your work I think you know there are so many people in my position struggling to to get artists on board or whatever so I felt like 
every time I have to say no to someone, I definitely try and point them in a, in a direction where maybe they'll say yes. But yeah, it's definitely a skill talking to people and yeah, rejection was a, a big part of it. But I ended up with all the artists I have at the moment and they're fantastic and I really enjoy their work. So is it like an exclu- on an exclusive basis, is it? If you're assigned with one gallery, you can't be represented by another? So yeah, interesting question. It depends really. I've got a couple of artists who have other galleries they work with, although few of them have galleries in Scotland. It's mostly done in London or abroad. Mm. Uh, there was one artist who uh, I worked with who actually had representation in Scotland and I basically had to be very careful with what I was able to sell because if he's consigned artworks to them then he can't consign them to me so mm. it was a mixture where I had some of his works they had some of his works um, and the build up to the big show he had with them I wasn't allowed well I wasn't allowed but it, it was kind of it would have been poor form for me to advertise his work at my place when he was showing there because they, they kind of felt like I was sitting on the coattails of all their advertisements and all their work because he was their sort of big poster boy for the um right. for their big event so yeah it's something to consider i mean i'm flattered if anyone thinks i'm a opposition you know if i'm any threat to their business <laughs> i'm like wow we really you're overstating what i'm doing here um mm. but you know if people think i'm a i'm a something to think about then great it means i've made an impact but i think yeah it's something to consider but a lot of artists have a lot of dealers around the place i think but i'm very much centered just in, in edinburgh right now so it's it's kind of all right yeah and how do you go about selecting like the artists and and pit and um, paintings and stuff that you you work with because uh, are you at the stage where you like like you say any you know because you're a small scale you want as many artists as possible but uh, as long as capacity can can take it or are you do you have a certain style that you like or yeah how do, how do you go about doing that so yeah and you know it's never easy uh doing this I and mean, it's having to say no to people is never fun but I kind of work on a basis where if I'm going to work with anyone, firstly, I have to like what they do, whether that's the idea behind their work, whether that's the work itself, whether it's them. And so before I sign anyone on, I tend to insist on visiting them in their studio um, and chatting to them and getting to know them a bit better. I sort of work on the the idea that I'm not representing just their paintings and representing them as people. I feel like art shouldn't be presented in a vacuum. I feel like these people, especially as contemporary artists, it's kind of more interesting to understand their art if you understand the person. I think that's a big part of understanding yeah. art in itself. So it's a lot down to the person themselves. And obviously at the moment I'm Edinburgh based, so it's majority Edinburgh artists, although there are some exceptions to that rule. If I particularly enjoy an artist's work and I think I could work with it and I believe in it, uh, then I'll, I'll get in touch with them and work on that. But um, no, on the whole, it just depends whether... I feel like I could say to someone, this is a fantastic piece of art. I really love this. This will look great on your wall, whatever. If I can't say that, like, I'm not going to lie to people. You know, I'm not going to start peddling art I don't believe is fantastic. I think there's, there's too many charlatans in the, the art world already that I don't want to contribute to that. So it's a lot mm-hmm. to do with whether I believe in the artist and the art themselves and whether I think this artist is going to keep producing art for the next 10 years. I mean, if I think it's someone who's just fancied painting for a weekend, I'm going to be like, absolutely not. Cause it's, yeah. it's not good for business. You know, you got to pick people who have a bit of longevity to them, which is difficult actually when picking graduates, because a lot of them come out of art school having done painting for four years or something. And 
maybe they keep painting for three weeks afterwards or three months and then suddenly there's no tutors or deadlines and they're like oh actually i quite fancy a job in finance and so it can be very difficult to try and pick the right people uh, and i think as a rule of thumb a lot of galleries don't pick artists straight out of art school they usually wait like three or four years to see if they kind of like stick with it and then if they if they're still doing it after three or four years generally they're kind of stuck on it and they're a safe bet so it is a bit more of a gamble that i'm going in straight at sometimes student or recent graduate level and backing them there but you know someone's got to back them and i'm happy to be that guy yeah no that's great and i, th I think that's what's unique or what sounds definitely unique about what you're doing is that you're kind of creating more of a, a symbiotic relationship i suppose between yourself as as the dealer and and the artist whereas um it seems to me that the industry doesn't quite match that as it is right now would that be fair to say yeah i think you know, dealers are helpful to artists. Equally, a lot of artists make a living without dealers. Uh, it's definitely harder to do, but the rise of, there's, I mean, there's a lot of platforms out there that allow artists to sell on their platform for like minimal fees, but a lot of big galleries in London, they'll take up to 40, 50, sometimes 60% of the sale price as, as a consignment, which is quite a lot of money if people are missing out on. That said, artists, like artworks, generally tend to sell for more than their like some value so like you know paint and canvas is worth 200 pounds mm. artworks worth 200,000 you know it's unlikely the artist is going to be out of money tell us a bit more about that kind of like you said there's a lot of charlatans around in the, in the art industry like I can see that there's a maybe a stereotype around art being quite um I don't know maybe kind of snobby at the, at the higher kind of elite levels like you said earlier on there's a lot of a lot of money in art um and that definitely comes across but um yeah what's your experience with that like what what were you referring to yeah so i did a course while i was at uni called charlatans and connoisseurs that was about basically the history of art dealers and the art market um and i, I learned a lot and it was quite it was, it was around the time i had my exhibition going on so i was kind of able to take direct examples from you know art dealers in like victorian london and implement it into my practice which was quite good fun it felt like i was actually learning useful skills it's like the mm. only time in my university career i felt that um but i think you know i think the reason people think there's this kind of money thing is because you do hear i think you know currently i think jeff coons sold a he's a contemporary artist sold a one of his sculptures for like 91 million last year which is like the current record for a living artist and you hear that figure and you're like, what is going on? Mm. Uh, and you know, the art market, I'm not even going to start on that. It's such a bizarre market. You know, it's the last unregulated open market. It's, there's so much fluctuation. Blue chip artists are worth so much money. You know, the impressionists are worth so much money. You know, I think there was a, I think the record is like 300 million for a, for a Monet sold like a couple of years ago. And, it, you know, it's just unbelievable levels of, of wealth. But these are going to, you know, the, the top 1% of the wealthy who own like half a country or something. You know, it's, it's not the everyday. So I think it's important to differentiate between the secondary art market, which is auction houses and the sale of generally established artists. And then the primary art market, which is people like me who are selling contemporary artworks of living artists and generally the sums are much lower generally you know the sums okay fine some of them are higher example like you know damien hurst fine he's a, he's a young british artist uh, this is label and 
he sells for a lot of money but it's a fine line you know i think a lot of people will put a huge price tag on their on their paintings and it won't be worth that much you know i mean value is a whole other theory that you know is is very difficult to get your head around but you know some people have said they can so it's a really difficult one and it's a really fine line and i think the only way to kind of become validated in this market is to really know your stuff you know i've done a four-year degree in history of art i'm very much you know at the, the bottom of the ladder you know there's a lot of people who are you know done phds in art and all this sort of stuff so then the key thing is just to keep boosting your knowledge and actually know what you're talking about i think there are too many people who work or maybe not too many but there are definitely people who work in the art industry who haven't done the research who haven't done the the time and just come into it purely from a, a money side of things and it is important you have to be business savvy but it's really important to understand what the product is yeah. and in, in terms of that it's about the provenance of the artwork it's about the idea behind it it's about whether it's a good art bad art you know there's a lot more than just the product itself so that's i think where it comes in to the charlatan and connoisseur thing you got to know what you're talking about yeah nice and I think on the on the point of kind of business skills, like you can always learn to be business savvy and to kind of understand business skills and finance at a business level. But you can't really learn that kind of passion for art. So like I think the passion for what you're doing should be the thing that comes first. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that I think that's a far better drive. I think if you go into the art world expecting to make you know huge sums of money it's the wrong drive. You know, you've got to stick with it through mm. thick and thin, whether you're making millions or, or pennies, you know, yeah. and I think, you know, for better or for worse, I'm uh, really keen to sort of st get stuck in and see what I can do. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with it. And hopefully, you know, in 20 years we can do this again and I'll be on my yacht and you'll be on your player <laughs> yeah. and it'll be wicked, but yeah. we'll wait and see. Yeah. You say Ryan, like um, you can always learn the business skills, that sort of thing. But do you think that perhaps perhaps one of the reasons many artists do sign for galleries and dealers and stuff is because they, they feel like they can't learn those skills or they're not playing to their natural strengths and they'd rather just do the artwork, for example. Is that why, is that why do you think so many galleries do get the clients because they don't feel they have those, um, you know, the sales skills and the negotiation skills to represent themselves uh, to their full potential perhaps? Yeah, definitely. I mean, galleries, you know, you sign to a gallery and you're signing to, a body of people who have a huge list of potential buyers, a huge exposure, uh, and they'll do all the hard work for you. You know, I think artists stereotypically are maybe introverts who don't like talking about themselves that much. That said, I've met lots who are the, like the brightest star in the room and will happily talk about themselves for hours. So that stereotype doesn't really work. But I think having a dealer is really important, not only for the sale of artworks, but for just support. You know, I speak to my artists quite regularly to make sure they're, you know, okay doing their thing. I mean, I, all my artists, I, you know, they're my friends. I want to get to know them and make sure they're okay. So it's important to, I think, work with them on a more personal level. And I think the reason galleries are attractive is because they offer the promise of getting you just that bit further. You know, you start into a gallery, suddenly you're being shown and there's 300,000, that's too many, and there's 300 people at like your opening rather than 30, you know, and it's, mm. it's that sort of next level up, and you mm. get small galleries and big galleries, although I think after reading quite a lot about, you know, the future of the art market, I think it'll probably be like 
you know, a hundred super mega galleries. They have galleries like all over the world and the smaller galleries will struggle a bit. Um, but yeah, we'll wait and see. Who knows? You can't predict the future. No. Yeah. As we're talking about it, I will, I will ask you about that quote because you mentioned that when we first, first spoke was, um, the art is the last unregulated open market. Um, like what, what does that, what does that kind of mean? Just like as briefly as, as you can. So, I mean, without professing to be a business expert, it's essentially that a lot of other markets are regulated by um, organizations, guidelines, stuff like that. But art, you know, you can buy a, a Picasso at 300 million and essentially all you're relying on it, staying at 300 million or more is people's perception of value. I mean, it could rise up to 600 million, it could drop to 50 quid, you know, and I think it's this, fluctuation and uncertainty uh, with art that makes it you know this unregulated market and i think you know there's there's nothing saying that this artwork has to be worth that much you know i think uh, unlike with you know commodities gold is worth a certain amount and it goes up and down within that kind of amount okay fine it can drop drastically or go up but it's not going to do that to the level that art does i don't think um i mean i might be wrong there please correct me if i am but i've as far as i'm sure that's kind of what i mean no, I, I think it's like the, the subjectivity of it, isn't it? Like the, it's an intangible asset almost because it, that value, you can't say, you know, this is breakdown, this is the material cost. Like you say, the canvas is probably worth 50 pounds or 200 pounds and the art worth is worth thousands. So, and that is like you say, all dependent on one person's perception. So how can you regulate how much somebody's willing to pay? It's kind of just left to a free market essentially, isn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly. That's the point. Yeah. And I think, you know, people's perceptions of wealth, you know, if you go to an art consultant and say, how much is this worth? The first thing they'll do is look at the auction results from the previous couple of years and see how much similar items went for. That's like the only way wealth or like value is really understood. It's in the auction room that it kind of goes for, uh, at least in the secondary art market anyway. Yeah, no, great. Okay, so we'll now go into the word association game. Are you familiar, Leo, with the, the word association? I am indeed, bring it on. Okay, perfect, perfect stuff. Okay, so your first word is audience. Participation. Expression. Self. Feedback. Music. Progress. Self. Evening. Uh, salty joy full does that count yeah that's fine provide passion art necessary money value and finally Text. Information. Nice one, thank you. Okay, so I am going to go for my first word to ask you about for art and necessary. So obviously we were going to include the word art, uh, given you're here. Um, but I think myself, as someone that's not, uh, you know, never sort of went for art as a passion, I was more of a sports boy myself. And that's what I spent a lot of my time in. People like me, I would say, often criticize and say, like, art isn't necessarily like what, you know, what's the point in art? 
Um, so it's interesting that your first word there was that art is necessary. So what is your argument for that? Yeah, so I think art is an all-encompassing term. I think you, and I mentioned this earlier, you know, the earliest signs of life we have are Neolithic wall paintings, art. They had no reason to paint on walls, but they did. And, you know, ancient sarcophagi have eyes and decorations on them. And, you know, throughout history, there's always been evidence of culture and painting and sculpture and you come into our 21st society and art then encompasses theater, music, film, TV, all this stuff is art, you know? And I think, especially when lockdown first happened, everyone suddenly turned to people who were producing content online, you know, Disney plus Netflix, all this stuff, that's all art. And if you removed all art from the world, it would be a very dark place indeed. And I think the amount of people who, in lockdown have turned to painting or baking you know baking is perhaps less art but you know just just doing craft i think is so important and i think human beings as a race we know we're the only race that produces art you know you know you don't get beetles drawing paintings um i mean there is there is examples of elephants being used to paint but you know that's a whole other ethic debacle but i think human beings intrinsically produce art and artists are resilient to people who will emerge from you know this covid thing and they'll keep doing it and they'll produce art to reflect the times we're in and to answer questions and to ask questions and for that reason i think art is necessary in keeping life going every sort of every country in the uh, sort of established world has a museum a national museum of art which they house their like most valuable possessions in it's it's necessary it's life it's culture culture is art and culture is life and that's what we live and that's what i think is necessary oh, nice great answer and, and you said this is slightly off topic based on the words but you said the humans inherently intrinsically just produce art so based on that do you think that anybody can produce art because there's, there's so many people sort of say oh, i can't do art i'm not artistic what's your sort of thoughts on that yeah i think anyone can produce art i think being an artist in the official sense is a different thing but mm. certainly everyone can be artistic i think if you look at something and even just draw the outline of the shapes you know that's your way of seeing and looking and reproducing it in your own expression art is about self-expression and you know the truly brilliant art that lives in this world is through moments of pure self-expression and honesty that's been produced onto canvas or rock or sculpture, or whatever. I think, you know, obviously you're, you're a sporty fella. And I think maybe the idea of sitting down with a canvas and some paints would, you know, send you, send you shivering, but you know, do it, sit down, get a pen and paper, look, just take time to just look at the world around you and try to put it down on paper. There's a very, very good book just been released. Well, maybe earlier in the year released by uh, the New York art critic, Jerry Saltz called how to be an artist. It's fantastic. I, you know, I recommend reading it. So just, it's just, it's a kind of a weird like series of rules uh, or guidelines on how to be an artist. And it basically says, look at the world, take things in, think about things. You know, I think a lot of people will walk into a museum, run around it, walk out again, go to the pub, watch the football, come on the Spurs. Like, you know, there's a whole range of things people will do. But if you go in there and take the time to sit and actually look 
and think about why this was made, how it was made, who it was made for, why was it made when it was, you know, there are so many things behind it rather than just how it looks. You know, I think a lot of people look at modern art, especially, and they're like, you know, my toddler could have done that. Yeah. And yeah, fine, your toddler might have done, but he might not have meant to. And it's, I think in order to understand all of art, you have to understand art in a maybe a deeper sense sometimes. But, you know, art means to you what you think it means. You know, the art, the artist can't force emotion onto you. You'll feel what you want to feel. And in that respect, everyone deep down, like, has that artistic ability. Yeah, have a look at that book. Yeah, no, I, I do like that about art in the sense that there is also, like, there is an objective element to it, but also a completely subjective element to it in that, as you say, you can interpret something in your own way. And that that is that. There is no kind of questioning of that in that way. And kind of when you said kind of self as a response to expression, and, and that is what art is to you, um that's actually really quite profound when you think about it because it it does mean that actually no one can kind of take that away from you and that that view that perspective on the world the way you see things that kind of resonance and emotion that is yours and and that is what art is and so that's quite it's quite meaningful i think yeah i think you know, next time you're in a gallery i don't know when this is going to be maybe it'll be in 10 years maybe it'll be in three months who knows but next time you're in a museum and there's someone standing next to you look at them and ask what they think in the picture and you know they'll tell you something that you'd never have thought of and it just goes to show that you know art is you know it's subjective isn't it mm. i'll pick up on on what you said to the word provide which was passion and maybe i'll ask as a as an addition to that um are you providing for yourself through your passion is that maybe the link there yeah perhaps i feel like you know life is you know, long and short and difficult and has ups and downs, but I think you've got to enjoy it, man. You know, I, I try to be mm. as positive as person as I can. And I think, yeah, you've got to provide passion everywhere you can. And I, hopefully I do it in whether I'm, you know, talking about a piece of art or, I mean, I, I bake a lot of bread. Uh, and so for me, that's a passion. I can give that to people and it gives them passion and, you know, makes them happy. And I think for me, yeah, I think that's probably a good way of looking at it. That for me, I, my passion is my provider, I suppose. Yeah. You know, I, I put everything into what I'm passionate about and hopefully, and so far it's, it's given me stuff back. So maybe there, yeah, that's where that comes from. Nice. And on um, another one from me on audience and participation, how from an artist's perspective and obviously your degree, I'm sure you could go on, on this kind of question in a lot more detail, but how does an artist think about the audience of, of their work in advance or is it more of a, an expression of self in that moment without considering that there might be an audience for this in the future or is it yeah. kind of completely so, a separate, a separate thing? Interesting question. And I think this could be answered in a number of ways, but my take on it is a lot of artists produce art in isolation on their own or in a gallery with other artists and they produce the art in their own terms for their own reasons and the artist you know ultimately majority of art is made to be seen and appreciated and enjoyed mm. but i don't think there are that many artists that produce art purely for an audience reaction i think you know the worst thing that can happen to an artist is they put a piece of art out and people just 
have no reaction to it. You know, I'd rather, and everyone I speak to who's an artist say they'd rather have someone hate or love their work rather than have them just like, meh. Mm. You know, like you want a reaction out of people. So I think that's all artists want from an audience is just a reaction, whether it's love or hate, they just want something out of it and they want them to feel a response, I think would be the way I see it. But uh, I think, yeah, intrinsically, a painting is to do with the artist rather than the um, the audience. But I mean, you also, I, as you said, I could go on for this and I'll stop myself. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you then get performance art and installation and there's a whole other side yeah. of things, you know, relational art, aesthetics, all this stuff. Um, but on in simple terms, that was my answer, yeah. Yeah, nice. And then final one for me then, what is the link between feedback and music? Um, I think probably because I do quite a lot of music editing. So feedback loops are uh, <laughs> something okay, I think yeah, about. Yeah. And yeah, you know, I think mu- music, I, mean, I play a lot of music. I play a lot of guitar. Uh, and for me, I guess, yeah, the feedback from that. Um, as, I, as I said before, I, I do have a podcast channel. So something you don't want is feedback from your <laughs> your audio. So I think yeah. for me, that's a bit more of a technical rather than an inspirational yeah, yeah. RTA yeah, reference. Okay. <laughs> no, no, nice that's a good uh, transition out of the the word association game actually um so tell us a bit about your your podcast the um creating conversation podcast and how uh it kind of came about in relation to your your gallery and and the journey it's been on since then yeah so that started off uh actually under a different name is under uh, rafiki talks art mm. which relates obviously to the gallery quite a lot uh and i set it up and i got a friend of mine to come on board with me and it was the idea to kind of speak to art world professionals and artists and all the people in creative industries and chat about art and see how they engaged with it and it kind of started off like that and then life got in the way a little bit and it's since so I've done I've done 10 episodes now and now that's that's season one I'm going to call it uh, and it's I think episode seven or eight it changed to curating conversation uh, I mean this was not a weekly uh, product it, ideally it would have been but i rushed into it horribly and was like oh let's record straight away when in reality i should have recorded like 20 and then released them it would have been far more sensible but the idea is now anyway the uh, sort of this iteration of it is to speak to it's still speaking to art world professionals but to get more of an understanding about their journey into what they're doing now and how they ended up there and you know if they're into art fantastic we'll discuss it and their views on it but it's it's less about um, art itself and more about the arts as a whole. I think I, I wanted it to be more approachable. I didn't want it to be this kind of very uh, art-focused thing where only you'd understand it if you were educated in art. I suddenly realized that, you know, that's not what I wanted. So it's, yeah, it's more open. I think I've had a real variety of guests. It's gone from like artists to dealers to gallerists to DJs, actors, you know, it's a real mishmash. Uh, and, you know, I think coming up, I've got a magician, that's technically <laughs> performance art. So, you know, it's a real mixture and it's been fantastic. It's have, I've had fantastic conversations, met really interesting people. Uh, and it's, it's a great networking tool, you know, at the end of the day, it means you can get in contact with people who otherwise maybe you'd be slightly shy to. And so that was really interesting. Uh, and then since lockdown, I've, I've been doing it solo, uh, which has been interesting, but, no, I really enjoyed it. And hopefully, I mean, people have been listening to it. So that's good, uh, which is more than I could have asked for. So yeah, hopefully you will keep doing that and go from there, really. 
Yeah, nice. I think we've definitely found that, haven't we, Josh? Kind of that networking opportunity through having the podcast as a, as a tool, I suppose, to speak to people who you think you might click with and people you want to talk to and stuff like that. I think that's definitely a good tool for, for a podcast. And it's interesting that, that you transferred it kind of away from, from the business to, to more of a kind of personal focus podcast, I guess, to kind of move towards that kind of thing of, yes, you've got that on the side and you can have artists from the business come on, or you can have people related to the business come on. Um, but actually that's kind of more something that you can use yourself to, I guess, um, kind of leverage what you want in a way. Yeah. And I think I, I moved it away from the gallery so much, partly because the word Rafiki to most people means nothing other than a character from the Lion King. Uh, <laughs> but I, I spent a bit of time in Kenya growing up and Rafiki is the Swahili word for friend. And so that's where it all kind of started. And you know, it did make great sense in my head. And then the amount of people who asked me, you know, what is Rafiki Talks Art? And I was like, oh my God, this is getting tiring. <laughs> so then we sort of rebooted it as Creating Conversation, uh, which was a far better name. And it kind of lets people understand what it's actually about. So yeah, I also think people respond better when you're not trying to endlessly plug your own business. Mm. I think, you know, I, I, I mention it a bit in the later podcasts when I'm, when it's not called Rafiki Talks Art, just because, you know, people don't have stuff like, pushed in their face all the time buy this buy this buy this it's it's not enjoyable for anyone involved so yeah i tried to make it a bit more independent uh, a bit more perhaps focused on me as a, as a person because ultimately i'm the only person involved in the gallery itself as the, as the dealer so it's i guess it's a form of also me putting myself out there and getting myself a bit more visible so then you know, hopefully people will be able to be like oh yeah and that's that guy and i know he's into art and yeah, he's not going to, you know, mess me around if I try to buy a painting from him, in yeah. theory. I mean, who knows? It might go the yeah. opposite direction. We'll find out. Well, that, that's soft to sell, isn't it? With like the sort of, I'm Leah, I'm the, the dealer, I'm a podcast host as well, and doing that sort of holistic personal branding. Um, so they sort of connect you on, on all of aspects of it. Yeah, for sure. And I think also, you know, in today's society, the the businesses on like, say, social media that get the most response is personal stories and people like tuning back into personal things you know it's it's the stuff that you keep coming back for is the journey and the personal aspect of it i think having a faceless business especially when it's a smaller scale thing is very very unhelpful i think it's better to know who you're dealing with what you're dealing with and for me a podcast is a great way to kind of broach that uh i mean alongside that i i write for a magazine which is really good um and i hopefully I mean, I might end up doing the same as you guys, a bit more kind of like video style stuff, just because, you know, online content right now is exploding and you know, you got to stay with the times a bit. So I'm kind of working with that, trying to get that working as well. I think that'd be a good direction. Nice. Yeah, definitely. I would, um, just before we go to the last section of the show, just want to pick back up on, on what you said initially about kind of moving about and living in a lot of different places. How was that as you know, as, as a kid moving around to different places, like what was the kind of key thing for you that kind of influenced your life now from, from that experience? Yeah. So I think things that impact me now from that, uh, I think my ability to make friends quite quickly, you know, I mean, I, I went to boarding school quite young. And so in that respect, I was, that was my kind of, my constant was schooling. Um, so that was, that was beneficial, but moving around at home meant that, you know, there was constantly, new people constantly trying to 
relate to new people and create friendships and friendship groups, which, you know, ultimately is a skill. Some people are more sociable than others, but it can definitely be uh, learned, I think. So in that respect, it helped uh, my parents in my, my dad's job and he had to entertain a lot of um, kind of like colleagues. He was in the army. So there was a lot of people coming around and my parents are very sociable people. So lots of dinner parties, which meant I got very good at a making gin and tonics and b talking to adults, uh, which, you know, to this day stands with me quite well. I think the ability to walk into a room and to be able to talk to everyone there and hopefully find something that you can relate on and have a meaningful discussion about, is is super important i think you know life is people anything else especially coming out of uni you know getting really het up with exams you know you might graduate with a first you might get a third but you know if you graduate with a first and have made no friends and no contacts and have nothing going for you then it's not that beneficial whereas if you come out third have lots of good friends and contacts in the right places you know you kind of level the playing field out yourself so i think for me it was a lot about people uh, rather than exams i guess i mean i still tried for the exams don't get me wrong but <laughs> yeah, uh course. i was yeah. always conscious that you know people is is it's going to help you more people are going to help yeah. you more than, than no definitely exams. and i mean that's that's something we've touched upon a lot you know to what extent is a degree i mean what what josh and i have been doing for the last three and a half years four years is that to what extent is that valuable in in the future to what extent can you achieve the same sort of um kind of headspace and success and all of that without going to university and spending lots of money. And, and it is a big debate and a big conversation in the kind of personal development space. And I don't think there's a right answer. There's certainly a lot of polarizing opinions kind of out there. Um, but it's interesting to see that you've got a similar kind of perspective of actually it can be on it and it can't be from a, a history of art uh, kind of background. Um, so yeah, that, I think we're, we're pretty much there. We're going to move on to the last, last section of the show now. Um, so we've got one question from you um, for our, our next guest. So have, have a think on, on what you want to ask. Um, but in the meantime, so the question from Isa from Happier Souls, who was one of our last guests, is what situation has made you the person who you are right now? Oh, interesting. A single situation. I mean, birth, that mm. was quite a big one. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm not sure that's there's a, a single moment in my life that's made me who i am it's certainly been increments of mm. instances uh but perhaps i don't know i think it was a year today that i started the rafiki gallery so let's yeah they're starting the gallery and actually getting the the balls to put my myself out there and try and do it without the fear of failure i think was probably a big moment because at that point my life changed a lot i put a lot more time into other things and i yeah i'll say starting starting the business i think yeah it was a big moment Nice. And then my question for the next guest. Mm, curious. I'd say, and uh, this could be interesting actually, what are the five objects that mean the most to you? Mm, nice. See what comes out of that. I'll tune in for next time. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's interesting. What are the five objects that mean the most to you? Mm. Yeah, we'll see if they're really materialistic or not. Mm. Spoken, <laughs> spoken like a true art gallery owner, I suppose. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. All right. Well, Leo, thanks. Thanks very much for for coming on. I've really enjoyed our our chat, and um, yeah, hopefully we've got a lot of value for our listeners there. And um, 
yeah, take care during during lockdown. Stay safe and uh, stay in touch. Thanks a lot. Thank you, man. Cheers. It's been a pleasure. Really appreciate it. Cheers, mate. Thanks, mate. Well, that's it for another episode of the 2% Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed recording. If you or someone you know has a story to tell, we'd love to hear from you. So please get in touch. And if you have a question you want answering, send it in to us using Anchor Voice Messages and you can feature in a future episode. All the links are in the description. Stay motivated, follow your dreams and as always, do it with a smile.